I'm Jay Caruso, and this is Closer Consideration. Acting offers the opportunity for a person to become someone else for a little while. Acting as a craft, as well as an art. Whether someone stars in a television commercial or a blockbuster movie, and some have done both, it's an opportunity for a person to step into someone else's shoes, whether it's for a day or months, however long it may be, or it may span years. Um, my guest on this episode is Kelly Alcoin. If you're a fan of the Showtime series Billions, you know him better as Dollar Bill Stern. He's also had recurring roles on The Blacklist and House of Cards. He also played Pastor Tim on the great series The Americans. Kelly and I discuss his career as an actor, what's changed, how the industry has changed, and some of those behind-the-scenes things that you may not see on your typical behind-the-scenes on a broadcast. You can find this podcast on the Ricochet Network or Ricochet.com and sign up for the membership to check the track free and that only costs five dollars a month for access to a lot more features. You can also find this podcast wherever you download podcasts. Please subscribe and review. Kelly Alcoin, thank you for being here on Closer Consideration. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been what it is like four years we did. I, I was on another podcast a year. Yeah. So uh, for, I, for those listening to this, uh, I had a podcast uh, called the fifth estate that I did with my, my good friend, Neil doing, and Kelly was kind enough to, to be on that. And, and that was at a time when I think billions had just, it was either first or second season. So it yeah. really hadn't like taken off and he was, and the Americans was kind of still going. Uh, so now he's like even a bigger star. So it's even cooler that he's decided. He's like, yeah, I'd be happy to be on your podcast. You know, so. no, we had a blast last time. We did. We did. We had a great time. And uh, and it's funny because this is one of those situations where, like, if we if we just go into the politics realm for one minute, I'm a conservative. Kelly is a, probably a proud liberal. You would say you are right. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. And so it's we've had our differences. We sit there and go back and forth on Twitter from time to time. But I mean, it's like this is the kind of situation where it's like politics doesn't have to matter so much that you can't just kind of like be cool with someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. And what I, what I've always loved about, um, about our exchanges is that they're always measured and, um, uh, th- there's no name calling. It's like, right. I, I don't know. It's just, it's great. It's the way I really, really wish more of our country and our world oh, could, uh, could meet I, these days. You know, I, I agree. I agree. Hey, so, I have an idea. Well, I have a different idea. That's interesting. Let's discuss as opposed to <laughs> you are evil. Yes. I'm not, you know, it, it's like, it, it's, it, it, and to give you an example, just how stupid it is. You know, and you have, when you have someone like Marjorie Taylor green calling 15 Republicans who voted for an infrastructure bill, traitors that you get to the point where it's like you're calling someone in your own party a traitor because they voted for a bill that was championed by a president of a different party. That's the kind of silliness that I just that I think people are kind of tuning away from. And unfortunately, uh, you know, but anyway, we don't want to so, get right. We're here to talk about acting. Yes. With an actor. And um so, I mean, anybody who doesn't know, Kelly is the son of a former congressman uh, from Washington State. Oregon. Oregon, right. Sorry. Yes. There you go. No, it's Pacific, okay. Pacific Northwest. We get very sensitive about that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> uh, but so, so, you know, you could make the joke that <laughs> you were brought up listening to bullshit all the time. So, no, but... <laughs> Anyway, I mean, what just kind of give you some background, like what gave you the acting bug? What when did you decide, you know what, this is what I want to do? You know, I can't tell you how many times when I was in high school, I said to my dad, it's like, that's all bullshit to him. So, yeah, I grew up listening. No, I think um, uh, I was a gregarious kid. I, I don't know if that was because we moved back and forth a lot between Oregon and D.C. and uh, maybe, you know, a way to make friends or a way to sort of hide shyness or loneliness is uh, one way is to be maybe not the class clown, but certainly be a sort of a show person. So that might've had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. My mom was a singer, not professionally, but she was a wonderful singer. And I, there were many times that I watched her perform 
in front of crowds. My grandfather played the mandolin. He started a antique shop that turned into a restaurant in the mountains of central Oregon and uh, called the Tumalo Emporium. And there was a, um, a saloon, an 1890s themed saloon where he played with other sort of old timey bluegrassy kinds of um, musicians. And my mom would sometimes come up, pop, hop up and, um, and sing. And it was just, you know, so I, I saw a parent doing that. And as you sort of alluded to, um, and some of your listeners may be familiar with the fact that there is a certain performative quality to politics. I don't know if that's ever occurred to anybody before. Uh, so watching my dad, you know, uh, and, and necessarily so I don't, I, I mean, I joke about it, but I, I, it's not that quality, that aspect of politics, uh, I don't think is necessarily a negative thing. You have to be able to perform somewhat and know how to tell a good story just to get your message across. It can get into dangerous territory where, uh, or unproductive territory, at least uh, when the story, because the, the, the spin becomes all, um, but I do think that, that, uh, there's a, there's a, a quality I saw in my dad watching him tell stories in front of audiences and make actual connections in front of audiences. And he was out in the district all the time, which was hard when you're West coast, East coast, you live in DC with your family and you have to go back to a district. It's one thing when it's, you know, Pennsylvania or, uh, or, or, Connecticut. It's another thing when it's Oregon or Washington or California. Um, in any case, uh, so I grew up watching my parents in front of people. And um, I think the child children of politicians often go to parties and events with their parents. So I got, I became very comfortable with interacting with people older than me, different than me, finding out about people, having a curiosity about people. Um, and I think all that led to acting being a, um, certainly a viable, but, uh, but it's sort of a natural, um, a natural progression. You need a curiosity about people in order to, um, inhabit a role and build out a role, create something, um, on stage. And you need, I think the best actors are the best listeners and, uh, listening to their fellow scene partner or listening to the, what the crowd's giving you if it's live. Um, I think all that was sort of developed uh, over uh, to whatever extent it is. Uh, I'm not patting myself on the back, but uh, developed because of the, the life my parents led and we led it by extension. When, um, when you decided you were going to do that, I mean, there's so many different routes to take. There's you know, theater and television, film or, or uh, musicals, whatever it may be. Um, what was, what, what, what it what took you what was kind of your journey in, in that and 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 what did you want to do and what did you find out that you started doing that you liked or didn't like yeah how did how did you get it started I uh, so music was a big part of my family like I said my grandfather played the mandolin my mom sang um, we would drive from Portland to uh, over the mountain to um, to Bend and. Uh, People who know Oregon might know that what I'm talking about, but it was about a four hour drive and we were always singing in the car and, and everything. Um, and so when I was maybe in fourth grade, I joined the chorus and there were only a handful of boys in the chorus and all the plays that my elementary school put on uh, originated from the chorus and the choral uh, instructor. Um, uh, so that meant necessarily they were musicals. And so my first play was a play written by the musical director called The Trial of Mother Goose. And it was a story, a hard hitting, ripped from the headline story about Mother Goose putting Old King Cole, no, sorry, Old King Cole had put um, Mother Goose on trial for defamation of character on behalf of the denizens of Fairyland. Um, and I played Old King Cole and I remember so I was on stage the whole time, even when I wasn't doing anything. But I remembered accidentally doing something off script and the audience laughing. And I just sort of like, wait, what? What just happened? Uh, <laughs> this thrill, this electricity through my fourth grade year old body. <laughs> and the idea that I could do something. It was cool enough that they responded to the scripted stuff. But the idea that I could do something 
uh, I could generate something out of my brain and the audience would react to it. They thought that was funny or later on it would be uh, maybe different types of reactions. But that was my first sort of ping moment of, huh, what is this acting thing? <laughs> um, and then I just kept doing plays. And early on, I, I was fortunate enough that there weren't that many boys uh, who were going out for these things. Um, and I, I think I had a natural, whether or not I was any good uh, at that age, maybe doesn't matter as much as a comfort. I had a comfort and I had a, uh, a, a good energy on stage. Uh, and you can get away with a lot of non-acting if you're just comfortable and engaging on stage. I think if the audience sees someone who's enjoying being up there and is comfortable, they are comfortable and there's something at least sort of charming about that. And uh, so I think that's what afforded me the opportunity to be on stage more and more and then actually maybe start to learn the craft of acting by high school. And oh, and so, what I saw, just in terms of what I saw, I, I, I sort of abandoned the idea of musicals uh, after high school. I, 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 I did a 180 and I thought, though, that's not real acting. That's not real theater. I want to do real theater. I want to do mammoth. I want to say fuck 50 times and I want to like get <laughs> dirty. And, and then, then, you know, that's the college phase. And then you realize, no, it's all real. And, you know, mammoth <laughs> has his place. It's kind of, uh, uh, but it's not, that's not all there is. Um, and I sort of regret not continuing singing. My voice is, voice is definitely atrophied, so I can't really do it anymore. But I, but there's some wonderful stuff in all, all these different types of, uh, of genres. Uh, there's such great stuff. I wish that uh, I had a more Mandy Patankin kind of uh, take on my career where you, you could go. be the Broadway singer and you could be the TV star. And, yeah. But anyway, but that, was so, always, that was always something that I, when I would tell people about Jerry Orbach, everybody remembers Jerry Orbach mm -hmm. as Lenny from, from, yeah. you know, from law and order, but it's like, he was a musical guy. Yeah. Um, he has a Tony award for, I can't remember what it was, but it was for a musical. It yeah. played the lead and in the musical. Jason Alexander, another yep. one who he started off doing that. I remember one of, one of Jason Alexander's early acting roles was in a McDonald's commercial. He's dancing around talking about. Oh, is kids. that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's like great. In the early eighties or something like that. That's cool. Uh, but that, let me, but that you brought up a point about getting better. So that's an interesting question. Like, obviously somebody plays like an, a musical instrument. They start playing the guitar mm -hmm. the, the first year they're playing the guitar unless they're a virtuoso, they're not going to, they're not going to be that good. But 10 years later, right. obviously with practicing, they're, they're going to be better. How do you quantify you being better now as an actor than you were say 10 years ago? I, like, I just say, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was going to say, well, how do you, like, how do you quantify that? Like I'm, I I'm better now than I was 10 years ago. And, that, and better is to me, it doesn't necessarily mean like, Oh, when you start winning awards, that means you're better. Yeah. But like in terms of <clears throat> you bring to a performance, is it, you know, how, how has that changed? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I, I hesitate. I, I think it's impossible to quantify. Okay. I think it's, uh, but it's something you feel and something you just know. Um, and it may be delusion, but you can't think it's, del <laughs> it's delusion. I, I think um, it has to do again with comfort. Um and I'm much less afraid of looking like an idiot now, which helps because then you can, then you're looser and you can try different things and you can be more spontaneous. Um, when you're doing TV, you don't have the benefit of, of rehearsal like you do in theater. So you really need that spontaneity. You need to, to have um, much less ego. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to have bland performance after bland bland take after bland take, you're not going to try anything big um, or not necessarily big, but something maybe out of the blue, mm -hmm. which might be exactly what the scene needs. Maybe something that the, the director and the writer hadn't even thought of, but that's where you as the actor, the third part of that triangle can bring something unique. If you feel comfortable, if you feel safe to fail. Um, and I think I, I, I just I just know when I'm in a room that I have something to offer. I don't even think of it that way anymore. I just mm. know it. Mm. And um, 
it's not always going to be good. I certainly will have more failures in my life, in my professional life, but, but it's not, but, but how to phrase it, being good doesn't mean you won't fail. Right. Um, and I think maybe even somewhere, this is just occurring to me now, maybe somewhere in that knowledge, owning that knowledge, maybe somewhere in there uh, is where you realize, oh, I'm better now um, because you, you're not back on your heels. You're not because of if you do fail or if you can't quite figure something out, um, you're not going to panic. Uh, you're going to eventually find something that works uh, to whatever extent it does. Um, it's an ownership and it's just a quiet knowledge. When I go on to, um, I just did this yesterday or the day before. Um, I just did a one day guest star on a TV series. It was just, it was an offer. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not doing anything else right now. This, this works. The show's shows a good show. Um, and it's been a long time since I'd been on a set that was somebody else's set, an established show four seasons in, um, walking on and, and not feeling like an imposter, not mm. feeling like the new kid on the block, just feeling like, Hey, I'm here to do, I'm here to do a job. Hi, how are you? I'm so, so-and-so. And I know it has something to do with the fact it does make it easier, obviously that a lot of people know billions. And, um, and so I, I don't have to prove myself to anybody. They're like, right. yes, you're an established actor. You're a good actor. You do this. Great. Thank you for coming on our show as opposed to back in the day when maybe there was more an element of, all right, who are you? What you got? Um, but I think as much as that might've been the case, it might be the case. It's also the case that I used to think I had to do that. I'd already won the job. Mm -hmm. So why did I feel like I had to prove myself again? But I right. always did. And, um, and that's for the most part gone now. Um, I'm sure it'll pop up when I do, um, you know, when I do my Meryl Streep 10 page scene uh, monologue in front of her, uh, uh, whenever that movie happens, I'll be like, oh, <laughs> shit, I, <laughs> I got to prove myself. But, uh, but that's it, sort of a roundabout, long winded uh, answer, but it's not a quantifiable. It's definitely it's a feeling. Um, but it, 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 it that you have to just trust, but it's easier to trust now. I don't I'm not fooling myself when I say, no, I belong not fooling myself when I say, no, that was good. Like I really, I just know it and I can't quantify it, but I just know it. There you go. Yeah. Um, the landscape of, for actors is, is certainly changed. Um, yeah. I mean, if you go back to the eighties, uh, your, your, your bigger movie stars wouldn't, wouldn't even want to consider yeah. doing television. I mean, at the time it was kind of like a, a, a landscape of television actors or shows where kind of people who, used to might've been big in the sixties and seventies, love boat fantasy Island, stuff like yeah. that. But, but obviously now you have probably maybe with the start of say like the Sopranos, uh, the wire uh, to maybe to a lesser degree, um, some other shows like on FX, the shield, for example, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned some, you know, Glenn close was on that for, for a season or two. Um, and now it's, now it seems to be this big crossover thing. Like it's, they can, Producers, uh, you know, uh, content providers can sell it as these big events. You yeah. know, when watching uh, the show Suspicion on on the Apple uh, Apple Plus, and I, I don't recognize any of the actors except I do know who Uma Thurman is, and so Uma Thurman huh? is, is is on the show. And so has did has that does that make it? harder or easier to, I mean I would assume it would probably make it a little bit easier to get work at the same time it's like how it's, do you know a, what's going to be good what's going to be bad I mean there's yeah. always there's always that risk correct it's a it's a mixed bag also Uma Thurman's on We Crashed which is uh, the limited series uh, I'm sorry not We Crashed um, uh, super pumped about the, the the series that billions showrunners Brian Koppelman and David Levine created a limited series about the rise of Uber. Um, and she plays oh, okay. Ariana, Ariana right. Huffington. Um, yeah. So she's all over uh, these, these specialty series. Um, I think it's a multi-pronged question, but uh, it, it's harder to get a lead role. It's um, 
because the the big stars are coming to either play awesome cameos or lead roles. Um, and but it's in a way it's easier to get some work. Be- right. So the, the, the so the big so the the movie stars who are coming back coming to TV are either taking um, like the cameo, the awesome cameo roles, um, or they're taking leads. They're taking lead roles. So um, it's harder for your, uh, your journeyman actor like, uh, like me to get say a lead role, but you can get some awesome supporting roles. You can get, uh, and, and, and I think to more directly answer your question, it's, it's probably easier now to get some work than it was back in the eighties because there are just literally, there's so many more productions filming. I think there's something like 500 ish um, uh, scripted television series now, as opposed to maybe 50 when mm-hmm. I was growing up. So in terms of the numbers game, I can probably find work. And, you know, I, I didn't hit TV. I, I was, I had a perfectly fine theater career. I was making my living acting since I was in my thirties um, on stage with the occasional uh, guest spot on TV. Um, but I, and that was fine. It still is. That still would be fine. I've never wanted to be, I've never, the goal was never to be famous. The goal uh, or rich, the goal was to be, um, my version of success was make my living doing what I want to do and what I love. Yep. Um, that stage that was even corporate theater or, or industrials as they call them, trade shows or whatever it was, I would do it. It was fun. I was using my skills. Um, uh, I, I didn't have to cater anymore. Um, but, uh, for a, I think, I think I wanted to house of cards hit for me when I was in my early forties, when I was about 40. Um, and so for a bald 40 year old dude, um, with mainly theater credits to be able to do a really interesting arc supporting character. And then, and then the Americans hit and then billions hit. Um, I don't think that would have happened. 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Right. It's just because of the sheer number of, of shows, the types of shows that shoot in New York are grittier kind of, they're not that you don't have to, everyone doesn't have to have the perfect body, perfect face, perfect head of hair. Thank God. Um, so and now I'm losing track of what the question was, but um, <laughs> I think, Oh, in terms of how easy it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm a little picky. If, if something comes across my computer, it's like, Hey, here's an audition for you here. Here's the description, read the script. If it's something I really don't like, um, I mean, if it's offensive to me in some way, I won't do it. And I've always been like that. Uh, mm. I've always had that uh, feel, even if I needed the money, but if it's, um, if it's something that is just like, this is really sort of blah, I'll, I'll audition for it. Um, and I probably would even do it if it's not something that I'm locked up for years with, if that makes sense. I would do a couple, I'll do some episodes on something that I think is a mediocre piece. Um, but I would rather not get locked up in a five-year contract for something like that. Right. Um, and, uh, sometimes, you know, certainly if it's someone like Uma Thurman involved or there was something I auditioned for that I would have loved to have gotten that Rachel Weiss was, the star of playing twins. I think it's, Oh, it was, um, Oh shoot. Uh, Cronenberg remake of, uh, tw- she, uh, she's twins and, uh, Jeremy Irons played the character in a movie years and years ago, but it was, it's a remake of that. And I think she's brilliant. Anything that Rachel Weiss is going to be in, I, I would want to be a part of. So yes, that piques your interest when you, mm-hmm. it's one of the things you check when you get the breakdown of the scene, you look at who's, who are the producers? What's the, what, is this on a network? Is it a movie? Is it, uh, what platforms it on? What's it streaming on? And who's the director? Who's the writer? And definitely, if it's if there are some cast roles, who's in it? Right. All that stuff goes into how excited you might be uh, about a project. Okay. Dead Ringers um, is the movie you were talking. Dead about. Ringers, yes, exactly. Uh, and this series, I think it's a limited series, uh, is going to be pretty cool. Um, she's great. She can do no wrong, and she's married to James Bond for Christ's sake. That's awesome. <laughs> so let, let me talk to you something about because I'm I'm um, one of those people that's a real fan of like 
acting in a sense of, you know, seeing good performances, that kind of thing. But there's also like a thing that I love and I know other people pick up on it too. A lot of times it's subtlety in acting that, you know, we're often like shown scenes where somebody's freaking out or crying or angry or, you know, something like that. But I mean, sometimes there's, it's something different and I'll give you some examples here. So like uh, Goodfellas, uh, the scene where Robert De Niro is, is contemplating killing Morty, you know, cream starts playing and all you're seeing is him looking he's either looking at pesci and you don't see pesci's face just the back of his head and he's looking over he's just kind of like all he's doing is he's not saying a word um paul newman did that in the verdict there was a scene there where the camera was slowly moving in on him and he was just kind of like staring into space and you you Hmm. see like he's thinking but he's not saying anything he's not doing anything and then finally um another example probably a little little more obscure is absolute power where uh, Ed Harris and Clint Eastwood sharing a scene together. And Clint Eastwood is explaining something. And, you know, just by looking at Harris, the way he's looking up at Clint Eastwood, looking down, like he knows he's a cop and he's talking to a crook and he knows this guy's full of shit, but he's not letting on that. He knows he's full of shit, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what, do, do you, do you try to do that? I mean, is that and when you bring that into your thing, is it more like, I'm going to give somebody a certain kind of look or raised eyebrow or something that, that maybe, maybe not anybody picks up on immediately there. Um, There are times uh, if you're in general, no, but uh, certainly if you're on take 15 uh, doing a, a film and you know, that you'd been raising your eyebrow or you note that, then you might want to do that. There are times when, when you just don't have the, the inspiration from the inside and you're working instead of inside out, as they say, you're working outside in, you're doing some technical things, you're doing some movements, you're doing something that will help you find what the emotion or the thought is, not the thought, but the emotion and the grounding, but you're not generating it from inside. You're generating it um, from the technical outside thing you're doing, what you're doing physically. So sometimes that can work. Definitely. I generally tend to try to get into the moment um, from the inside and have the stuff come out, but whatever you do, then you have to match. If you match, if you do something specific physically in the master, you have to, you have to do the same things essentially uh, in the close-ups and the coverage. So you might get to the point where you are like, all right, I'm going to raise my eyebrow now in a manner in which is intimidating or whatever. Um, generally speaking, no, it's, um, it's, uh, it's more about trying to vibe with the person you're acting opposite and, um, and, and just really going through the thoughts, having the thoughts, letting the thoughts hit you. Um, and, the one technical thing I'll say that I've over the course of my career, I'm getting better at and I've strived to, I was a mover. I was a bouncer. I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm fidgety. Uh, And it's been fun over the last years to experiment with more stillness. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really like what (laughs) I, I really like the scenes where I'm comfortable. I can tell, and I know I can remember back to shooting it where I was comfortable being still. And I think that's what ends up happening. And what what, the types of scenes you're describing are all about stillness. They all just approached. They allowed themselves to just have the thought. They didn't push anything. They didn't grab their chin, you know, and it's like, Hmm, or scratch their head. Like I'm thinking they didn't do anything uh, even approximating that they just were still and they thought the thought. Mm. And they had the comfort, they were comfortable enough to do that. Um, that I think is, I'm guessing that te- that, that is the extent of the technical um, thought it's, that went right, through. But that, that, that's something that you would think would come across to a viewer. Like he's thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you, don't, totally. you, don't, you don't have to and, sit and, there and like, let me think for a moment. It's just like, right. and, and it was a great thing. I remember uh, hearing years, Jesus. 15, 20 years ago or whatever it was, I, I remember Michael Caine was talking about acting and he was saying one of the things that he had to learn um, as he was getting, as he was, uh, his career was moving along was, I mean, less is more, sure. But uh, it was also the, 
the audience is going to know what's happening in the scene and in over the at that point in the story over the course of a of a episode or a film, and you don't have to do much. They're going to actually if if you do less, that allows them to um, to put what they're thinking and feeling onto you in your face, and they'll read more into your face than they might if you were trying to tell them what to think by pushing something with your face. Uh, that's, he was much more succinct and he said it with a much more interesting accent than I do. But, um, but <laughs> it, it, that's, it, it's, it's a good lesson. Um, the story you're, you're shooting out of context. It's not like a play where you jump off a cliff and you've got two hours until you hit the bottom. Right. Uh, this is, this is, uh, th- these are always out of context and you have to keep reminding yourself where you are in the story. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every moment. You can just be like, right. Oh, I'm just thinking about killing him. Or I'm just thinking about maybe there's just a huh moment, just like, Hmm, what is, you know, and those moments are small. Like what happens if, if you study yourself when you're just contemplating something on a really, I'm just, okay. I'm just, uh, looking out the window right now. It's a, it's a cold rainy day. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't talking to you on the phone, on if we weren't having this conversation right now, I might just be staring out the window thinking thoughts and my face wouldn't be moving. Um, but if the camera were on me, it wouldn't look blank because something's actually happening. Right. It's it. That's, Go, going back to an earlier question, so from the earliest days of film acting, that was my the biggest thing I needed to learn, was that to trust what people say, you just don't believe it. But the actors who've been doing it for a long time are like, you don't have to do much. You just have to really go through in your brain. You really have to go through what the character's going through, and it will translate. It will. Hmm. Uh, and then certain directors might want, okay, I want to, but I want to see more on this. Uh, uh, but in general, it'll be a truthful a more truthful performance if you just allow yourself to feel it and think it. Now, speaking of like the directors and this is an interesting thing that they have what they call actors, directors, and then they have other kinds of directors and, and then there's actors or directors that are famous for doing multiple takes. And then some that will just do it in a couple. Like obviously I think on a TV show, you're probably working with more directors. Uh, I don't know how many of them repeat, but I'm assuming it happens from time to time. But still, probably a hand, you've probably worked with a, a number of directors over the last five or six years. Yeah. Um, and I'm not gonna we're not gonna name names or anything like that. But do you find some are uh, easier to work with, or the same, or is yeah. it completely different? I mean, I mean, you you obviously you've got a group of creative people, writers, actors, directors, everybody getting together trying to create this cohesive product, but I would think yeah. there's probably going to be some tension from time to time. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, especially with TV, there, there's so uh, little time to put something together. So, and the interesting thing about most TV is that um, you'll probably, you, you, it's more likely that you'll have a different director for every single episode in any given season than it mm-hmm. is to have a director repeat. Mm-hmm. Um that changed a little bit with True Detective, where they had—I think that was the vanguard. Uh, it was the start of the movement towards having the the one director for an entire season um, and having that one unified vision. Um, Mindhunter did the same thing. I'm sure a lot of others did too. But generally speaking, you have a different director for every episode, mm-hmm. um, and so that inevitably is going to lead to they have tone meetings with the showrunners and they. Um, you know, they, they, they talk about what they want to do and, um, um, and that's all, it's, it's all approved and, and set up ahead of time. But inevitably, once you're three seasons in, two seasons in, um, let alone five or six like we are, you know more, much more about the character than any incoming director is going to know. Mm-hmm. So the dynamic is different than it is on a film or certainly theater. Um, and you don't have rehearsal time. The rehearsal consists of, okay, let's just read the words. Then you read them. And then you do a little blocking. Like maybe I'd move here. Oh, that feels good. Well, what if I did that? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, maybe pick up the cup on that line. Okay. Everybody feel comfortable. Okay. Bring in the crew and then you run through what you've decided. Maybe a couple other tweaks. Uh, the crew decides, learns how they are going to film. Some, I mean, uh, well, the camera crew certainly learns how they're going to film something, how they're going to light it, how they're going to do all this other stuff. And then you start shooting and you probably have time for, you know, if you're lucky, five takes 
Um, if you get past that, then you're running behind. Mm. So what I've grown to appreciate, which is exactly the opposite of what we were taught in school, we wanted from a director. What I've learned to appreciate is like, I just need you to pick up the pace there. Or um, I think maybe a little less, uh, <laughs> the thing I shot uh, two days ago, um, I got really dark on one take and she's just like, yeah, maybe a little less. Uh, and I was like, scary. She's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like less Dexter. Okay, cool. Um, but you know, she wasn't, there's no time to get into the heads. Like it, the directors who, um, who I have a harder time working with and some people love with, uh, with, with, even with TV, but there, at this point I have a harder time working with ones who are like trying to break down the emotional process too deeply because we don't have time for that. Mm. Um, give me a shorthand and yes, a more result oriented note. It's, which is exactly what you don't want in theater, for instance, during your, um, uh, your rehearsal process, but you have, you have a month, you have three weeks to five weeks to put something together as opposed to 15 minutes. Um, I want someone to say a little less intense or uh, a little faster or, mm -hmm. You know, uh, that just works more for me. Or I think he's more angry. I think he's a little less so. Um, and then you can make adjustments because you know the character. Or if you're a guest star, like I was, uh, um, uh, I, I just think I'm, I'm at the point where I, I can make those adjustments on the fly. I can fill in why. Um, I don't need you to help me come up with my motivation. I just want, give me the technical thing you want. And then I will make, uh, I, I will create a real version of that. I'll create a human being who's going to do it faster, if that makes sense. Okay. So that raised an interesting question. So excluding scenes you're not in, that kind of thing. So for a show like Billions, like, which is, they're typically the episodes are what? 60 minutes. Is that right? I mean, just under, yeah. Like they think 55 to 50. 60. Yeah. How long, how long does it take to shoot one episode? Yeah. Uh, in general, it's two weeks. So 10 days. Okay. Um, okay. There's a movement now to uh, God, I was doing uh, I was doing a show at the back uh, the latter half of last year that uh, was it was averaging six days a week, um, and then had a number of seven day weeks, which uh, was whew, Jesus. I don't know how they did that. I didn't have to do that because I, uh, you know, the actors are are rarely on on set every day, but the crew was right. just running ragged, and that's where it gets dangerous. And that was part of what the 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 union. Um, uh, the negotiations were about just like, gosh, you can't, <laughs> we have to drive home too at the end of these days. Yeah. Um, but uh, so generally speaking, it's, it's 10 days, two weeks. Okay. And how many yeah. hours a day are, are is, is it going from time that everyone gets there to the time? Like you said, they get to go home. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I'd say the average would be 14 hours a day. Okay. Um, and you get, uh, you get a, um, half hour lunch usually. Um, and again, as an actor, you probably have some scenes off, uh, um, although a lot of times they'll try to cram all your scenes into fewer days uh, just for scheduling reasons. Um, yeah, they can be long days. They can be long days. And it's, um, the, God, the sit and wait is so exhausting. I know yeah. that sounds lame, but it's just, I would much rather be go, 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 go than, yeah a lot of the, and then the sitting around that, that happens. Um, and, uh, and, and how does that affect? Like, so if we talk about uh, what is it, a movie, the, the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring, the, oh, yeah. the scene where, 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 uh, where Barmir dies. And the, I, somebody was talking about that, that he was talking about it. And, and Sean Bean was mentioning how they filmed, you know, obviously they do his side. Yeah. Because, and then they, they break, they had to take a break for lunch and to change everything around. And it was like for two and a half hours yeah. before you go back again. Yeah. And, and so is that, I mean, how do you find those moments of like where you may have been shooting for 15 minutes and now you got to wait an hour or something for things to change? It's a skill. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it is a, its own skill. Um, harnessing your energy, maintaining your energy is its own skill. Um, that also took me a long time to, to learn. Um, and it sucks when you, especially if you're in an, uh, a heavy scene, you shoot, it's over your shoulder, your partner gets the, gets the first uh, coverage and then break for lunch. And then you have catering, which, uh, and you've got like, I don't know, lasagna or something. And then 
you're just about to enter your food coma and it's like, okay, back now, Kelly's coverage. It's just like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, you learn to gauge what not to eat during lunch. Uh, it's so weird that the, uh, Eric Bogosian, uh, who spent, um, it was on, obviously he has an amazing career, but he also spent some time yeah. on billions. He wrote this thing called your first day on set. That was a step-by-step practical guide to, if you've never been on set before, what happens and who the different people are, what the jargon is, some recommendations. He even talked about like everything to when you show up, there'll be breakfast and you can have breakfast. It's going to be this. You probably will be in makeup. So the PA will have to get it for you, make an order. Just all this tech, all this really basic stuff. And one of those things that I would add to his, his, list is if you know it's going to be your coverage coming back from lunch, maybe just have the grilled chicken <laughs> or maybe have a big salad. You know, weird technical stuff like that, mundane stuff like that matters because I've had, I can tell just shitty performances that I remember were because I was exhausted after lunch. <laughs> I Like Sean Bean, uh, Sean Bean was saying, like I, it was hard to remember where we were and to get the exact right feel because we've been away from it for an hour now, mm-hmm. but that's part of it. And then, which is inherent anyway in the turnaround. Um, but then the fact that you've eaten too much and you're just really sluggish and you can't <laughs> think it matters. It really matters. So that's, it's the kind of thing you never think about when you're doing theater. Um, and you sort of learn as you go along with this. And I love the fact that there's weird shit like that. Um, it's just, it's just amazing to me that even after as long as I've been doing it, I'm still running into these eureka moments. It's like, oh, right. If I eat less, I'll be more on top of it. And I bike to um, our set nowadays because okay. it's it's about a half hour bike ride. It's about a half hour when the van picks me up. So that's easy enough. But if it's an early morning shoot in particular. I don't need to have 15 cups of coffee. I can have one, but then I bike and my body's energized and my morning scenes are better now that I get some exercise on the way in. It's just, you know, that kind of thing, which I never would have thought of 10, 15 years ago. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's interesting to people, but it's, it's the, um, what is it? That's the craftsman part of it or the, the, the working man part of it. I, I don't know. There, I like, I like the lunch pail quality to, to this stuff as well as the fun of the, of the acting. But I like, I like showing up on set. I like having, I know, I know so many of the crew folk um, over the years and I like the mornings where you're shuffling through the, the breakfast line and, uh, and just like, eh, morning, yeah. you know, I, I like that stuff almost as much as I like the actual acting. Right. You know? Oh, and that is interesting because it's yeah. like people don't really know it. At any time, a lot of times you'll see on TV, okay, here we're going to take you through a day on the set, and it's right. you know, you know, kind of scripted and very yeah. basic. So that that is interesting. So it's like add a chapter to Eric McGosian's book. Don't yeah. don't have the lasagna <laughs> if they're doing your coverage <laughs> after lunch. There you go. Totally. totally. <laughs> so you've you've obviously you've worked uh with different actors on the show. Um I mean, how do you guys all get along? I mean, it's hard to, obviously I've seen your photos on Instagram and stuff. You guys always seem to be having a good time, but I mean, is there, I I assume you're all, you're all working together at some point. Some of you have to get on each other's nerves for for whatever reason or, or, and, and, and is that just kind of stuff that just happens and then it's gone or does any of it linger? How does that, how does that work? What's that? All these people are dead to me. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I will tell you no bullshit. This, this cast and crew, uh, but just speaking about the cast, um, the, who are the people you spend the most downtime with could not be better humans and, and could not be a, a better mix that it just, the chemistry is so easy and so, um, fun, um, and supportive. It's, it's almost like the, the, <laughs> the level of um, misbehavior from these characters uh, dis- displayed, engaged in by these characters is, is in almost inverse proportion to how great these people are, good, what good humans they are and how great, how much we get along. 
it's, I know that sounds hokey, but it's true. Uh, uh, Steve Kunkin and I, uh, he plays Ari Spiros. Like, you know, we hate each other on set and in, in the most annoying ways, like we get on each other's nerves, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But we're like, he's one of my best friends now. Um, Daniel Isaac, who plays Ben Kim, how could anybody, he, he is as sweet as his character on that show. <laughs> um, you know, and, it's just, just, just my word to, to Stephen Kunkin. He is so good at playing oh, such yeah. an annoying asshole. Oh, yeah. oh he's <laughs> so, so he's, brilliant. Yeah. He's really, really good. He's a great actor. Um, and it, it's, so I haven't really experienced being particularly annoyed with, um, with anybody on the set, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, every once in a while, as I mentioned, there've been there, over the years, there, maybe there has been a director or a moment where um, we're not seeing eye to eye. That could be irritating. But um, whereas early in my career, um, I would just do what they wanted me to do and, and back down mm-hmm. and then look at my performance when it aired and realize, ah, shit, I was right. I should have stood up for it. Now I actually do sort of at least engage in the conversation. And the great thing is I don't harbor any grudge because it sort of makes us talk it out. And at the very least I'll get to do it both ways. Right. Uh, But so I haven't experienced that. Um, I know that directors and producers, uh, every once in a while you see a lot of tension happening and maybe some, uh, some blowups. But my show's, including billions have been great. The, the producers have been great at, at keeping us shielded from that. Mm-hmm. Um, you just sort of catch it every once in a while out of the corner of your eye. Maybe uh, it doesn't happen much, but just if you do catch it, it's, it's something that um, they're attempting to keep away from you. So I, I, we haven't really experienced that all that much. It's well, been the good. opposite. It's like a big, it's like a big family. Truly. That's good. I mean, that's yeah. the, and I, I suppose that works better for, for, especially when you're doing a lot of different, scenes together because there's yeah. a, there's a lot of collaboration that probably goes on. And, uh, and so that, that I would yeah. imagine that helps. Um, I mean, it, it, what is it, what was it like? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be honest as a fan here. I'm not a biggest, I'm not a huge fan of the latest season of billions. Okay. Okay. And I say that, not as a, I, it's one of those things where you become very invested in a character. And so yeah. with Damian Lewis no longer on the show, I mean, Axelrod was just this kind of like the centerpiece of this entire thing. Even with all of these other big characters around him, he was like the man. And it was just kind of this thing. And, and, and Corey Soule, who I think is a terrific actor, uh, but I don't know if Michael Prince has that same thing. And so, but that's me you looking at it as from a fan perspective, what has been your approach as an actor? Suddenly you have this central character that is no longer there anymore. Right. How does that shape the way you are? You're basically, I just have to continue to be the same dollar bill that I've always been. doesn't matter who it is or does that, or is, is there a different dynamic there? Right. Um, it, it's, I mean, the, <laughs> it was a little easier for us because we knew for that whole year ahead of time that the change was going to happen. Right. Um, Damien had just signed for, for five seasons and he lives in England and uh, his family's there, his life's there. And um, he, uh, it was just, it just felt like time for him. I'm not speaking for him, but that's, uh, he's mm-hmm. made public statements about it. Um, and his wife's health um, probably played, uh, played a role as well. Uh, for for me, it's an interesting position to be in because my character's whole MO was loyalty to Axe. Right. Um, so once Axe left, it became it became a little difficult to... Uh, I love the fact that they wrote that scene where I was like, fuck this, I'm out. Um, I think that was very dollar bill. That was very true to the character. The only thing that sucks is that, that I'm not around as much. Um, so that... Uh, but I think that was the right move. Um, and going off and doing something, uh, with Mafi, I think was an interesting idea and fun. And, um, there's some comedic value to, uh, what they've, uh, what the two of them pairing yeah. the two of them that, that went so far as to try to break each other to pieces in a, in a boxing ring. Fortunately, they were inept at boxing, so no one got hurt. Um, <laughs> 
So I think I think they made it made some interesting choices with it. We've been renewed for season seven, and okay. um, I'm certainly hoping and expecting to uh, to to still be a part of it. And um, uh, I, I think there's some interesting things that are going to happen. Um, but I guess my my approach to the character has always been just taking what's on the page and what they, where they, because they do have control of where they want to take the character. I just make it real based on my back history now of, of where Bill has been mm-hmm. and what he's gone through. Um, and so uh, it, it was sad when Damien left because I always got, he said even one time, he was like, I love when we get to do these scenes together. Cause we always do this weird stuff. And this was in the middle of, when um, I was stripping, I was dropping my pants in the street and he was just like, why we always get the weirdest stuff. I love it. <laughs> um, and um, so it was sad because I like, I love working with Damien and I, I think Bill and, and he and, and Axe had, a, had an interesting chemistry and an interesting sort of mysterious um, backstory that we, that it's like, what, what made this guy so loyal to this guy, you know? And it's not like, and they were friends obviously, but they weren't friends like, wags and acts so what is this and it was always fun to kind of uh explore that quietly in my brain um i haven't had a lot to do with um with Corey yet but i like him Mm -hmm. um he's a good guy and i think he's a great actor i like the fact that they i think it's smart that they're not trying to create another axel rod well that is true yeah you know and um and I, and I think this interesting, uh, you can cut this or anyone who hasn't watched the latest episode who <laughs> cares about spoilers, cover your ears now for five, sec- uh, 10 seconds. But I think it's really interesting that Sacker's gone over um, and abandoned uh, Chuck. Because um, I, I do think Condola, um, I love every time she's on screen. So if, if they're writing more for her, I think that's only a good thing. Yeah. Um, she's brilliant. Um, uh, you know, she's the youngest person ever to be nominated for, for Tony awards. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. Sidebar. There you go. Um, but it's always hard when there's a big change. I think the, one of the things you, you have to balance, uh, on a, on a long running series is how to keep things fresh, mm-hmm. um, with continuing to do what the audience wants and what you do well and what's good about the show. And I think the the show was forced into um, keeping it real fresh <laughs> uh, because, uh, because Damien choosing to leave. Um, and I, I, I think I, I, I've uh, seen a handful of the episodes this season and I think there's some really interesting stuff there. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to see how they continue that, uh, in season seven. I'll have um, to give it, I'll have to give it another shot. It could be yeah. the whole idea that Damien's gone. It's kind of like, damn it. You know, it, oh, totally. it's funny. There are people that don't even, there are people I know that don't even know that, that Damien is British. It's funny because every time they see him in something, he's always playing. <laughs> <laughs> remember. Yeah. It's like band of brothers. It's like, okay, this is the, the yeah. He's American. The he's, wait, he's what? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Matthew Reese with the Americans too. Philip uh, Jennings and the Americans. Oh, yeah. uh, so for a while, for a couple of years, when those overlapped, both of my sort of leading men in the shows I was in were playing Americans with brilliant American accents. Uh, right. And we're both Welsh. Um, <laughs> it's like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, I just watched a series, and I oh gosh, I'm 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 going to feel terrible forgetting his name, but he was in Band of Brothers as well, and he was they were the Liverpool section of England. Oh, wow. he, play, he played a detective, and he he was you know he was Sergeant Ranny in in Band of Brothers. He got knocked down to private when they re- revolted against uh, having to fight with what's his name. Um, anyway, I can't remember her names, but it's like all of a sudden seeing these actors twenty years later. And there's yeah. just natural British roles is something. I just realized I was looking That's at great. something here. Before we get to the final question, I want to see. This is interesting. I'm looking at your filmography on, on Wikipedia. And 1998, A Perfect Murder. Yeah. Snarky waiter at the Met. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go. You know, I actually really enjoyed that movie. And I because I yeah. always think Michael Douglas was always seemingly at his best when he was playing the wealthy scumbag. <laughs> it's like a totally perfect for him. Totally. And I have to I go th- back and I have to watch that now because I got to, I got to remember, I don't remember that. And I have to go find it. 
You know why you don't remember? Because it didn't make the cut. Oh, it didn't. Okay. It did not make the cut. Oh, yeah. No. I. Uh, it was really fun. It was an overnight shoot. It was at the Met. It was in that big room, um, open room with the um, the Egyptian, uh, 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 I can't remember the name of it, sarcophagus maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But there's that giant glass wall that looks out over the park. Um, and it was overnight. Um, and Viggo Mortensen, who was the star, uh, he had yet to do... Uh, the Lord of the Rings. He was not, I I sort of recognized him, but not much. And he came and he took, I was a waiter. There were tons of other of extras, background actors um, uh, with, uh, uh, with, with trays of, of, of hors d'oeuvres and including me. And um, I remember one of the extras was being really obnoxious to me, just uh, like, I don't know, like like sometimes background actors can get really, um, petty uh with each other um billions doesn't have that uh, that problem that wonderful group of people a lot of them who've been with us for five years but as soon as i got my line he all of a sudden like, <laughs> started treating me differently he i i what it's never you can cut this part if you want but um <laughs> so vigo mortensen comes up and he, he takes uh, uh, something off my tray and then he takes like three more and i say something like are you sure uh, are you sure you've had enough sir you know like with a scowl <laughs> and he's like i don't know uh, stick around and we'll find out or some line better than that. Um, and it got cut. Oh, <laughs> so, that's and that would have been my first film role actually. <laughs> oh, that, that, that blows. I, I do see you were in some, some law and order episodes, which is kind of oh, cool. Yeah. You know, All I'm, the laws and order. Yes. I am. I am. I am always, um, people are always amazed. I was a big fan of law and order, especially the early yeah. seasons. The first like seven or eight, which I think were were some of the best, and I I tell people that there was um, uh, episode in season one uh, uh, called um, I can't even remember Violence of Summer it was called with um, and Samuel Jackson was in it. Oh my gosh! And uh, um, oh gosh, why am I um, why am I going crazy here? Uh, uh, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman was oh also God. in it. Oh, that's that's a powerhouse episode. Jesus. Yeah, and so was there was somebody else who was in it. Um, Gil Bellows was in it. Oh my as well. God! Yes. My God! So and this it, was first season, so this was um, 19, what was the name? Nineteen ninety. What was uh, the lead guy who was very sort of hangdog, droopy face, uh, droopy eyes? Um, was the um, the DA right? Uh, yeah, pre Sam Waterston. Yeah, it was it was Michael Moriarty. Michael Moriarty oh, yeah, and George Zunza, who um, was only in it for that first season. And I found right. later that the reason why he wanted off the show was because he lived in L.A. Oh. and so he didn't like having to fly back and forth between between L.A. and uh, and uh, and New York every week. So. I get that, but boy, I'd like to have that problem right now. <laughs> uh, I, was Jill Hennessy in it that season? Or was that she come in? No, season two? no, no. That was she didn't come aboard until season three or four. Oh, okay. So it was it was um, it was Richard Brooks who played uh, okay. Paul Paul Robinette. It's, uh, yeah, that's like I said, that's how I know. It's like I just remember all that stuff. It was kind of gritty, and I just remember all right. of these people that have gone on to bigger roles. It so that's was why the, so. Yeah, it was such a great little lifeline for theater actors in New York. Mm, and New York was a lot cheaper then. So you could survive on an off-Broadway paycheck, um, <laughs> maybe add your catering gig. And then every once in a while, this influx of cash from Law & Order. And <laughs> there you go. It doesn't work now because New York's crazy expensive. But uh, it certainly helped before. Yeah, Jill Hennessy was... That when I first started watching it regularly, Jill mm-hmm. Hennessy was on, and it was, okay. I think the last year of Michael Moriarty and her first year before Waterston came out. Right. Um, right. And one of the joys of we've talked about Twitter. You and I became friends over Twitter. Um, but like, I'm I'm friendly with Jill Hennessy now on Twitter. Oh, right. Like we we and it's so cool because I had such a huge crush on her, and I think she's so <laughs> such an interesting actor. Um, and she's a musician, and her 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 she's a singer songwriter, and her music's great. That's it's one of the things about Twitter I appreciate, where you can actually connect with people um, that you wouldn't have run across otherwise. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So one last question before I let sure. you go, and this is what I do with 
which each guest. So like, let's just say, I mean, we, we haven't, we basically just talked about acting. We don't, I didn't want to do a how to, but if, if there are people out there who are interested in becoming an actor, yeah. what's one piece of advice that you could give them that you would do as a start? Yeah. What would, what would um, you say? I like the way you phrased the question because it's so hard to, the landscape is completely different from when I got started. There was right. no internet when I got started. Um, and there was no Facebook, there was no YouTube. There, were, there was no self-generated, very little self-generated stuff. Um, I think the, the advice that is probably going to be the case forever uh, in this industry is If you're going into it to become famous, you should rethink your approach. Um, you need to go into it because you, you really just can't do anything else and you really are, are desperate to do this and create a community around yourself, um, a supportive community, also ideally a creative community, um, people that will do everything from being available for you to self-tape with because self-tapes are exactly the way, the only way you're auditioning nowadays, even with theater, generally speaking. Um, but also who will just be your, your rock during the downtimes and be, uh, you, you have, you're going to spend so much more time not working and not even auditioning um, than you are going, than you are going to uh, be working that you need to have a, a group of people and have a life outside of it um, uh, as well. And try as hard as you can to be ambitious, but not competitive, which is a really, really difficult line to cross. Try to see it when some of these friends you've surrounded yourself with, when they have successes before you do, try to see that as, um, as uh, proof that you can do it too, as opposed to why the fuck isn't it me? Those are the types of things I think are, are going to be universally important. There you have it. So, Kelly Alcon, thank you so much for being here on Closer Consideration. Thank you. It was awesome. <laughs>